Welcome to the Global Animal Health Network podcast, where we will be showcasing the stories of the movers, shakers, and history makers all over the world doing big things in the animal health community. Today, we will be visiting with a veterinarian turned one health expert, all the way from Washington, D.C., who shares with us how a chance teaching job at a middle school catapulted her to serving as a One Health key opinion leader on Capitol Hill. Through her experience, she is now enabling and impacting hundreds of others by creating One Health curriculum plans and outlining her lessons learned in her book, The Art of Science Communication, sharing knowledge with students, the public, and policymakers. Her story just goes to show that a veterinarian's work is not done just inside a clinic, but also has the ability to mold the future of the next generation decision makers and the animal health industry. Let's learn more about her story. So today I'm really excited to uh, be showing a super exclusive guest that we are having on the show. Um, not only is she the first veterinarian we're interviewing, but uh, she's also the first interview that we're doing with an expert in One Health, which as we all know is the intersection of animal health and human health and has really become a topic of interest for pretty much everyone around the world, but specifically in life sciences, uh, due to the outbreak of coronavirus. So uh, today we'll be speaking with Dr. Deborah Thompson. She is the author of The Art of Science Communication, and really it's her mission uh, to share knowledge with students and the public and policymakers uh, truly about effective communication uh, of science. So Deborah, thank you very much for joining us, and let's just jump right into it. Tell us about yourself, your background, education, and uh, a little bit about your career path. Well, thanks so much, Amanda, for inviting me here. And it's such an honor to be the first veterinarian. Yeah. <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, my gosh, my career path. It's been a jungle gym and not a ladder. I'll <laughs> say it like that. That's great. <laughs> my friends are like, that. We've really been all over the place. So let's review a little bit. <laughs> um, so when I have two bachelor's degrees, one is in music, the other is in science. Wow. Does that make sense? <laughs> uh, and at that point, I was also working as a professional musician doing, um, you know, wedding gigs, reception gigs, things like that. And I was also teaching children in primary school music. Um, from there, I, I applied to vet school. Even with two degrees, I did not get in the first time because wow. that's <laughs> uh, so instead what I used uh, that one year gap for is I actually was teaching in a middle school and I loved it. I was teaching English language learners in a middle school in, um, in Quebec, in Canada, and they were all uh, francophone. They were all French speaking kids and mm -hmm. I loved it, but I never forgot my passion for veterinary medicine. So I applied again, and fortunately, I got in. Wow. Um, so I moved from Canada back to the United States, and I attended Tufts Veterinary School. Um, and in addition to getting a, a DVM, a Doctor of Veterinary Medicine degree, I also got an, a Certificate of International Veterinary Medicine, which is, in retrospect, probably one of the first One Health programs there was in the world. 
Um, but it wasn't called that then because nothing was called really One Health then. Right. So you hit uh, the nail on the head when you were talking about One Health. One Health, just for the um, the benefit of the audience, it's the interconnection between our health and the health of animals, the environment, plants, everything. A sick environment can cause sick people, can cause sick animals, which then can cause sick people. So everything's connected, right? It's a holistic view. Hmm. Um, in addition, the One Health approach is teamwork between people of different backgrounds, strengths, skills, and we come together and contribute to solving and preventing hard, hard, hard uh, health problems. Hmm. So when I uh, finished veterinary school, I did an internship. If um, your audience has lived through an internship, you all understand why I'm laughing because that was a tough year. <laughs> um, it was like 80, 90 hour work weeks, right? Um, oh I think my longest shift was like 26 hours. Yeah, it was it was it was a good good learning experience. I'll say it like that. Um, and then after that, I was going into clinical medicine. Hmm. But I never forgot my love for teaching and hmm. my love for one health. So after doing my 10 to 12 hour shifts, I go home and create lessons for kids um, about one health, and that's the way I could relax. <laughs> and on my days off, I went into classrooms and I taught about One Health. Um, so from there, I had the opportunity to be a volunteer with the California Veterinary Medical Reserve Corps because um, the way I see veterinarians and the reason why I wanted to be a veterinarian was because I saw that it wasn't just helping the animals in front of you, it was helping the people who were relying on those animals, hmm. be it for food, for companionship, whatever the reason is, you're not just helping the animals, you're helping hmm. the community. And so on my days off, <laughs> uh, I, I was trained with the California Veterinary Medical Reserve Corps um, in case there was going to be deployment during national or excuse me, state emergencies. And in 2018, there was a state emergency with the wildfires. Hmm. So I was living in San Francisco area in California and I was called to go up, um, what would that be about 300 kilometers, the 200 something miles um, further north to the area where the fires were really, really um, devastating. And there I was, um, it was a life-changing experience. I actually wrote an article about it <laughs> that was published. Um, but that, that experience made me realize that I wanted to, yes, help families, but I also, with the power of a DVM degree, I could even influence policy and actually change think of the world in a in a bigger way my my world my bubble i expanded it so i applied for the american veterinary medical association's uh congressional fellowship uh, that's supposed to be in policy and i was fortunate enough to got to get it yeah. um that year they only selected one and i was shocked when i got it wow. <laughs> but was i grateful wow congratulations that is quite a selection process it, yes, I was shocked. <laughs> I was shocked, but so grateful. It changed my life. 
Wow. So I just want to touch on a couple of things you said, because I thought it was really uh, interesting to highlight. You know, you mentioned that the first two times you applied for vet school, you didn't get in. And I know for a lot of my friends who are veterinarians, you know, that is a extremely difficult um, reality to face, not once, but then twice. So tell me a little bit about your resiliency because you were able to then pivot into a completely different career field that ended up creating an opportunity for you to be full circle and communicational. So tell me a little bit about how you had your mindset after that, that second time and you know when you got to teaching and what, what was the, the push for you to apply for that third time and how that felt when you got in? Kind of talk me through that process because that is an amazing story of just persever perseverance and resiliency, truly. Right. So um, thanks for the question. Just a point of clarification. So I did two bachelor's degrees at the same time because I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> and then I applied for vet school, didn't get in. Uh, I asked them at that time, I thought applying to two schools would be enough. <laughs> it truly was not. Shame on me for thinking that, but you know, life goes on. Sure. But I asked them, what, how can I make it stronger? How can I make the application stronger? And they told me GREs. They did. Wow, that is a surprising answer. It wasn't my grades. It wasn't my animal experience. It was the standardized test. And I go, are you kidding me? Like in my head, I'm like, right. really? Really? <laughs> so, wow. so, yeah. Um, and so they said it wasn't my animal experience. It was, um, so I didn't need for the next year hmm. to, you know, work exclusively in an animal hospital. Um, even though I did on weekends um, pop in and, and contribute to a volunteer with animal hospitals um, during the year of teaching, but I gained an opportunity to um, expand my skill set. And it was so much fun. And you can imagine 11 to 16 year olds, it could be a challenge. <laughs> Patience sometimes. <laughs> But in the end, they were my kids. Yeah. They were my kids. And to think back, I mean, now my kids could have kids of their own. You know, it's, it's funny to think about that. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it really solidified my interest in teaching, my interest in giving back to the community, my interest in inspiring the next generation mm -hmm. to put a positive, you know, to make a positive impact on the world. Um, so, so when I applied for vet school, they actually asked me, I, I, I didn't have the exact same essay questions. One of the essay questions though, I remember, and this was a long time ago, so I'm sure that they've changed them since. So I'm probably in the clear saying it. Um, but if you have to take a gap year, what would you do? <laughs> You're like, funny, you should ask. <laughs> exactly what I have been doing. <laughs> Um, and I, I definitely took the GRE um, exam, the standardized test exam, several times that year to get it to the scores that I wanted it to be. And 
I was fortunate enough to have some interviews the following year and I was fortunate enough to get a few offers. So yeah, that's my story, but I, it did really break my heart when yeah. I got that rejection because I worked so hard for it. Sure. But um, failures are not failures if you can learn from them. Exactly. Thank you. That's yeah. exactly right. So looking back on that now, if you could give a, a few words of advice for veterinarians, maybe who got rejected from a vet school or who are maybe struggling to see if they do have a gap here, just happened. So, you know, what advice would you give them? Um, Joseph Campbell's had a great quote, follow your bliss, hmm. follow hmm. your bliss. So if you find something that you're passionate about, work towards that. Sure. You can, you can do something else on the side to keep a roof over your head, sure. but don't forget about your passion. And if you don't have a passion, keep exploring. Yeah. Well, that's solid advice. And I think that's really true for veterinarians who, maybe they're going through vet school and they want to specialize, but they don't know what specialty they want to go into. Or maybe they're going through vet school and they're thinking maybe being in a clinic isn't what I want to do. And it's a nice segue because it brings me to my next point, which is um, the only one who uh, was accepted that year into a congressional fellowship. So Tell me a little bit about that, your experience, uh, your expectations you had and the reality uh, that uh, happened when you actually got the fellowship. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I actually wrote a book about it, <laughs> um, The Art of Science Communication. It's definitely a third of the book. So if you're curious, definitely dive in there. It's available on Amazon, online, bookstores, things like that. Um, but expectations going in, I didn't have them. I didn't have expectations. And to have um, maybe just a better understanding for the audience of what a congressional fellowship actually means. For this particular fellowship position, it was a one-year position. The American Veterinary Medical Association sponsored my year. Then I was trained through a group called AAAS, which is the American Association for the Advancement of Science. If you've heard of the Nature Magazine and the Science Magazine, they are the people associated with science. So to give a little bit of background there. Mm. Now they train um, several hundred of hundreds of people um, to work in the federal governments, either in agencies like the United States Department of Agriculture, or the National Institutes of Health, um, but they also train people to go work with congressional folks like senators and representatives from different states. And I was one of the fortunate few, I think there were about 33 of us out of 250 who were actually on the Hill, as we call it in Washington, DC, so working in Congress. And um, the process is that after being trained, then you meet with a lot of different offices um, on, on Capitol Hill and see where there's a good fit. It's a whole nother um, application process, if you will. And my passion is One Health. I wanted to have a hand in environmental health, human health, public health, global health, animal health and welfare, of course. And I felt like my education with the DVM degree, as well as the Certificate of International Veterinary Medicine, um, 
I, I could contribute in those ways. Um, and fortunately, I got a few, few position offers. Um, but in the end, I decided to go with um, Senator Dianne Feinstein from California, who's the senior senator from California, which is the most populous state in the United States. So she has been a senator since 1992. She is a powerhouse. Everybody in that office was not only brilliant, but they were good at what they did. They cared about what they did. Um, and I just learned so much about leadership and about how to get a team really working beautifully just by sheer observation and being in that office. Wow, and that's not something uh, you hear very much uh, coming from folks who spend time on Capitol Hill. So that's really refreshing to hear that uh, there is hope that still exists. Yeah, really, it really does. And there are um, <laughs> definitely several pieces throughout the book that really takes the curtain and pull us, pulls it back. And you mm -hmm. can see what life is actually like on Capitol Hill. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned, you mentioned um, that uh, very influential woman in your life. Were there other key influencers along the way, kind of looking back at your journey where you could see they, they had a fingerprint on, on your life along the way? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, um, I remember one of my advisors in veterinary school for the certificate program was uh, Dr. Robin Alders. She's Australian. Um, and she had been the head of the International Veterinary Medicine Program at the time. Mm. And um, I did two different research projects for the certificate program that took me abroad. And they were incredible. The first one I was in Nepal, the second one I was in Tanzania. And wow. she was my advisor for the, for the program in Tanzania. Um, Originally I was scheduled to go to India, but something fell through about a month before I was going to be leaving. <laughs> she swooped in and helped me out um, and created a, we created together a whole new project focused on One Health, but taking place in Tanzania. That also changed my life considerably. The thing that I have to say about Dr. Alders is that she is one of the most humble people you would ever know. The thing is, you wouldn't know it because she doesn't, she doesn't say it. That's the beauty about humble people, right? <laughs> Unless you ask them, That's they don't, they don't show um, really what they, what they can do. But um, man, she's a powerhouse, brilliant. And I visited her in Australia um, back in 2019 before the pandemic started, mm. and uh, it it was wonderful to reconnect after so many years. She's mm. been always a cheerleader and I'm really grateful for having met her. Yeah, I mean, I, I can totally relate. I look back on my career trajectory and I can see truly the, the ebbs and flows of my career path and the people along the way that were essentially the rocks in my river that kind of helped lead me. And I know without those folks, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I love hearing um, especially strong, you know, you mentioned two women in your life. I, I love to hear that, that there's, there are strong women that can help come beside you and, you know, make sure your compass is pointed in the right direction and really just kind of bolster, you know, the, the, the saying empowered women, empower women. Like I so love that. 
uh, and think it's really pivotal, especially in the animal health industry. You know, um, the veterinary industry specifically is very feminized. But outside of that subsegment of the animal health sector, that is not necessarily true. And so um, it, it warms my heart to hear that there, there are women out there who are forging paths and trailblazing, truly like you, creating your own story. Um, and there is no roadmap of how to do it. And, um, you know, I, I think that's probably, I'm sure what you highlight in your book as well, but really just creating your own destiny and just taking the, uh, the hand that you're dealt, whether it's not getting into veterinary school or um, following your passion of One Health or what other trials that come along and really just adapting to that. I think it's really impressive. And um, again, great segue into kind of my next question, you know, looking back, what was, if, if you had to kind of narrow it down to maybe one or two, what were the most useful either degrees or certificates or actions that you took in your life that you could really pinpoint and say, you know, this was something that truly set me up for success later on down the line? Great question. Great question. I'll say the first two things that come to mind. Um, my year teaching in middle school, and that was not how it was originally planned. I wanted to go to vet school. <laughs> but even though I taught younger children uh, music before, and I've also taught adults music, and I taught adults uh, English, um, I felt like that year in physically being inside of a middle school with kids between the age of 11 and 16, even though I hated middle school when I was going through it myself. <laughs> yes, we all do. <laughs> oh my gosh, oh, the nightmares, I tell you. <laughs> I felt like that was really instrumental in solidifying my, my passion for teaching. Mm -hmm. It it was life-changing but the thing is i didn't recognize it at that time sure. i had a lot of fun that year i saw my kids growing um they didn't know that i could speak french i forced them to speak to me in english and then at the very end of the year i surprised them and they're like what <laughs> they were really upset with me yeah, they're like, you did what i'm like you got so much better <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was good times. The other, the other item, and this is, this was a double-edged sword. So interesting that I jumped to that in my head because when I got a certificate of international veterinary medicine, remember one health wasn't a thing. I mean, it kind of was a thing. We learned about it in class during the certificate program, but it wasn't like how it is today. People were not designing masters or, you know, doctorates in one health. It didn't exist. Um, and so I did that program, not necessarily because I thought I would get a job in one health after, because unless you had an MPH, a master's of public health, it didn't exist. Um, but I took that program because I was passionate about it. And lo and behold, about 10 years later, I can actually use what I learned 
in those extra hours of classes right. and my years and my summers abroad uh, working with One Health Research that I could actually implement those skills today. Right. Wow. So when you're talking about One Health, um, you know, you did a great job defining it in the very beginning. How do you see One Health fitting into the animal, animal health ecosystem in the future? Um, you know, is it going to be more veterinarians are going to take a different role in creating legislation? Um, is it going to be an increased focus on food production? Uh, kind of tell me, you know, through the crystal ball, how do you see One Health playing a role uh, in the animal health ecosystem? Awesome question. Um, there are a few ways. So I've served as a consultant with University of California at Davis, the One Health Institute. Um, and I'm also have been serving with EcoHealth Alliance as a One Health uh, expert consultant, I believe that's my title. In both situations, I've been working towards One Health education at the, what we call tertiary level, at the university level. And so the future of One Health that I can see and that what I've been contributing to, plus I'm writing a textbook on it, don't get me started on that. That's that's a whole other talk. What don't you do? You really don't have any free time. You're always working. Busy. <laughs> um, but the answer to your question is that One Health, as it is an interconnection between animal health, human health, the environment, um, it's the glue that holds everything together. And the thing that you need to have, if you are going to be the glue, is the ability to talk across silos. And it's that communication piece that I feel like all One Health experts really need to be exceptional at. Mm. Because we can know so much about agriculture. We can know so much about animal health and animal well-being. But if we're only talking within our echo chamber, mm. what good will it be? We can get really loud in that echo chamber, but until you get the influencers outside of that chamber, you're not going to be moving the needle the way you want to. Mm. And so the way I see One Health is um, having more and more, not only conversations, but actions with invested people from different um, disciplines and strengths uh, in order to improve the health of people and animals mm -hmm. and the environment. Yeah. And I mean, obviously we need more folks in this arena, not only from the animal health side of the house, but also the human health side of the house coming together and very much like you did, whether it's through conversations that lead to actions or, you know, legislations that at least get proposed. So awareness is erased, even if it doesn't uh, go through and meet all the qualifications that it was initially set out to be, getting those conversations started with people who make decisions and who can push actual change along, I think is very pivotal. And, um, you know, I think you have that unique perspective of knowing the process of how it works, seeing it firsthand and getting to work with those folks and learn their thought process and learn, you know, what they, where their pressures are coming from and, and what KPIs they have to meet. And so I think it's a really unique program that you're a part of. And, um, you know, let's, and you mentioned, you talk about it in your book. Let's talk a little bit more about your book. So, you know, 
you specifically mentioned when, when we talked prior to this that you intentionally made it a short read because you wanted it to be condensed and concise and to the point. So just tell us a little bit more about how you thought about putting the book together, the framework around it, and you know who your target audience would be with uh, the, the book that you've written. Right. The target audience would be aspiring and professional clinicians, scientists, engineers, anybody in STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, or even STEAM with the arts there. Mm -hmm. Given that I'm a, a musician, you know, like the arts is a part That's of right. me, right? That's right. Um, but there's a large section in the book that's dedicated to communicating science and medicine with the public. Mm -hmm. And these are things that I have learned along the way in my career. And I have been actively trying to improve myself ever since finishing up that internship way back when, because I didn't have time to, I didn't have, well, I had no spare time, right? Mm -hmm. um, but once I got out of that internship, then I joined something called Toastmasters, which is this, it's a communication club. Okay. And I was the token scientist. Everybody else was in IT, you know, computer engineering, things like that. Um, and granted, engineers, um, they have also taught me a lot, but I was also, I was the only person coming from medicine, I'll say it like that, or veterinary mm -hmm. medicine. And so it was such a wonderful learning opportunity for me because I would say things and I would see, oh, they're not getting it. Why are they not getting it? Mm. And then I had to take a step back and be like, oh, right. Because that's the language that I've been speaking for the last X amount of years, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I see new graduates, because I still work in the clinics on occasion, mm. um, and I see new graduates um, explain, um, say, kidney problems and saying renal instead of kidney, mm -hmm. it's like, okay, we're, we're, there's a step there, we need to bridge, you know? Um, it's just because it's a whole new language that we learn in medicine. And we do it because it's shortcuts for us. We can communicate really efficiently that way, but it doesn't, it's another language and we have to appreciate that. So communication is really key. And the book is talking about uh, lessons learned throughout my career so far in um, how to improve communication for clients mm. um, and the general public. Wow. I, I think you have a, you know, just a truly unique story and it shows your passion about One Health and wanting to educate the future generation, the ones that will be in charge of uh, helping us clean up some of the uh, challenges that past generations have left. And, um, you know, I think it is pivotal to start talking about these types of things and making science digestible. Uh, you know, I know we talked about this before. One of the uh, apparent and blatant miscommunications around science has been around the whole coronavirus situation, whether it's uh, reality about, you know, I, I remember seeing social media posts about, well, why can't we treat this with antibiotics? And, you know, that's just a fundamental understanding of biology. And so being able to talk about science in a way that's digestible, palatable, and, you know, I think you said that you highlighted this in your book, uh, speaking to people in a uh, 
manner that does not come off as attacking or condescending, or like you said, using language that does not preclude people uh, who don't understand the difference between renal and kidney. And so I think those were some really great points that you brought up. Um, if somebody was wanting to learn more or uh, have access to your book, I know you mentioned Amazon, but where could come, someone come to either speak with you? I know you, you said you might be doing uh, speakings as well, but, but tell me a little bit about uh, if someone wanted to learn more about you or your book, where should they go? Uh, thanks. Um, so I have a website. It's Deborah-Thompson, T-H-O-M-S-O-N.com. And uh, there's an area where you can request availability. And therefore, I could go and talk to a school. I can talk to a conference, um, talk to a, a company. Um, it also lists all of the different subjects and places around the world where I've been fortunate enough to to speak at as well as some endorsements. And most importantly, it talks about the book and how you can order the book. The, the link is all up there. So deborah-thompson.com. Awesome. And we'll make sure to attach this to uh, below the video uh, as well so that people could have access to that. So uh, we run out of time. I could sit here and talk to you for another 30, 45 minutes because I your story is uh, inspiring for many and not just in the veterinary animal health industry, but anyone who comes and faces a challenge or faces rejection or faces, um, you know, truly a pivot point in their career, embracing uh, what I like to say, embracing the suck and figuring out a way to turn that suck into a success. And you truly are a trailblazer. Um, you know, I don't know if I've met another veterinarian who has been a congressional fellow uh, and has written a book from it. So um, I really just want to commend you on that. And for, for a sign off, I guess, you know, lasting words, if you had any, uh, any other advice, you know, you mentioned following your bliss, but is, is there anything else that you would say to anyone uh, listening to this that, you know, maybe challenged in their career or trying to look for, for other opportunities outside of clinical practice? Would you have any advice for them? Yes, absolutely. I have <laughs> I have experienced a lot so far in my relatively short career, but I say that I've been fortunate to experience such things because I remain curious. And one of the reasons why we join veterinary medicine and we work towards health is because we want to make a positive difference. Um, but I believe wholeheartedly thinking of back about my veterinary school class that not only did we want to make a positive contribution to the world, we also wanted to challenge ourselves. Hmm. And medicine is constantly changing. It keeps us on our toes in a good way and in a difficult way. <laughs> and I understand the day-to-day -day challenges when it comes to clients, uh, when it comes to difficult cases uh, in general. But I would say never forget why you wanted to do this. What good, what good have you contributed in the last week? Think of at least one, two, three good things that you're grateful for. 
and see if you can expand upon that in the upcoming week. Mm -hmm. And that's how we can make a difference together. Wow. I think that is solid, solid advice, especially uh, during this year and a half now of times that are not always so positive. Uh, I think that's a really good note to end on. So Dr. Thompson, thank you so much for your time today. I was so excited to talk to you. Um, I'll make sure to attach all your information uh, so that anyone who listens to this and wants to learn more can get in contact with you. And thanks for just being a trailblazer. I, I really am looking forward to following up with you and, and tracking your success uh, further on. And we'll definitely uh, keep up with you and, and during, through the Global Animal Health Network and be posting about you. So thank you, Dr. Thompson. Thank you, Amanda. This has been fantastic. Okay. <laughs> Good job. That's always the worst part is at the end. Or